Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Sorry for the incredibly long delay, but I promise there's a good reason for it. Before we get into this, you should know that this is part three in a multi-part series about World War II in Alaska. So if you haven't listened to the previous parts, I highly recommend going back and starting with the Battle of Dutch Harbor. So I don't want to bore you guys with all of my life drama or whatever. But I did make a huge move recently. I moved to the Mojave Desert in California. That's why there was such a massive break between episodes because it was just kind of a big process. And I've also been having some major audio issues since being in this new house. So sorry about that, but I seem to have it all worked out now and I'm recording from in a closet. So perfect uh, situation, I guess. And even though I'm living in California now, I'm still going to be doing this podcast for the foreseeable future. There are so many stories that I really want to tell. However, I did want to let you know that I have a new podcast project in the works, this time with a partner, and you can expect to see that drop around Halloween. I'm super excited about it, and I'll give you more details as it gets closer, but I'm psyched working with one of my favorite internet friends. And it's going to cover a wide variety of topics, and I'll give you more info as time goes on. I also wanted to start this episode with a PSA about plagiarism. As an academic of English literature, we discuss plagiarism often, and in my opinion, it's akin to intellectual property theft, because that's what it is. Unfortunately, it's a huge problem in the podcast community, since there is no real standard or regulation for citing sources. But most good podcasts will mention their sources on the show or in the notes, as they should. I recently learned that one of the most popular true crime podcasts has been plagiarizing on the hard work of other true crime podcasts, including Friends of Mine, as well as from journalists and documentaries. They've been making exorbitant amounts of money from ad revenue and patrons, using the hard work of other people. I would just ask that if you listen to a podcast and learn that they're doing this unethical practice, please don't support them. Please support the podcasts that have actually done the work and deserve the credit. And unfortunately, this true crime podcast has refused to even acknowledge that they've done anything wrong. They've just 
deleted the episodes in question and have continued to make money and they're continuing to have tons of listeners who somehow are able to excuse this violation. And it really bothers me. It's some it's something that's just really close to my heart as, you know, somebody that had this drilled into them throughout college. And I know how hard it is to put an episode together and having someone else steal your work and then make tons of money off of it has got to be just the worst. So please don't support intellectual property thieves. Please support those of us that work our asses off to bring you a good show. I always try to mention the main source for my shows, especially if it's one main source like a book and it's because i think that it's worth reading and it's the right thing to do and i'd love the author to get a bump in sales from mentioning it i know plenty of other great podcasts that do this and i think it's a really cool way to help out writers that have inspired us and whose work we appreciate so thank you for listening to this psa i apologize if i sound like i'm on a soapbox but It's just an issue that's near and dear to me. And I think so much to you guys that put out the hard work. I know how hard it is. And a lot of you do like three times as much work as me. And you guys deserve the credit. So props to you all out there busting ass to put your shows out. So just to refresh your memory, the writer of my main source is Brian Garfield. And the book is called The 1,000 Mile War. As I previously mentioned, I'd like to send a copy of each main source book, or at least the ones that are worth reading, to one lucky patron for each topic. At the end of June, I sent one of my lovely patrons a copy of The Midnight Assassin, and I've just recently sent a copy of Garfield's book to another lucky patron. So if you're a patron of mine, keep an eye on that mailbox. You might be getting something from me soon. I also wanted to acknowledge a book that uh, was actually my primary source for the Leon Crane episodes, episodes 28 and 29, which tie into World War II in Alaska. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, you may want to give them a listen after this. But the book is called 81 Days Below Zero by Brian Murphy and Tula Vlahu. It was an exceptional read and had a lot of great information on the war, as well as just telling Leon Crane's story. I highly recommend it. It was one of the better survival, man-versus-nature type books that I've ever read, and I love that genre. If you would like to join my small but wonderful group of patrons, please click the link in the show notes. My Patreon income goes towards books for research, and I absolutely appreciate the help. Patrons at all levels receive a thank you card and a podcast sticker, as well as access to bonus episodes. The higher levels will also receive other swag and goodies as well. I wanted to say thank you to my, all my patrons, but especially my newest patrons, Rachel M. and The Firm Line. I'm working on sending you guys some thank you cards and some stickers, as well as just working on sending out stuff more often to everybody. And I'll definitely be doing so for every upcoming holiday. I love the holidays especially Halloween, so you'll definitely be getting goodie boxes, as well as Christmas. I just love buying presents for people because I can justify my shopping addiction if I'm not doing it for myself, I guess. If you'd like to do a one-time donation to support the show, simply click on the PayPal link in the show notes. 
Every donor of any amount will receive a thank you card and one of my new podcast stickers. Lastly, before jumping into today's episode, I wanted to mention a local cold case that just had a massive break just a few days ago. This is actually a case that has been on my radar since the very beginning of this podcast. But unfortunately, there just hasn't been that much information on the case, which is why I haven't covered it until this point. 16-year-old Shelley Connolly was found murdered over 40 years ago on January 7, 1978, near McHugh Creek. The night before, she had last been seen at Chilkoot Charlie's, a local bar, talking to a group of men. When her body was found the next day, she had obviously died as the result of violence. Someone had sexually assaulted her and thrown her over a steep edge at the side of the Seward Highway. At the time, DNA evidence was collected, but it would still be 30 years before science had advanced enough for a complete DNA profile from the evidence to be completed. The profile sat in a database for many years, until last year, when Anchorage law enforcement were inspired by the story of Washington police using genetic genealogy to find the killer of Tanya Van Silenborg and Jay Cook in 1987. Anchorage law enforcement contacted the same lab responsible for the break in that case and asked them to work on Shelley's case. They were able to come up with a profile that they could match to one of three brothers, the McQuaids, who were currently living in the Pacific Northwest. However, only one of the brothers fit the witness description of a man seen with Shelley the last night of her life, 62-year-old Donald McQuaid, and law enforcement in his town of Gresham, Oregon, helped out by tailing him until they were able to get his DNA off of a discarded item, a cigarette. Testing on the cigarette proved conclusively that it was his DNA found on Shelley's body. Last Friday, he was arrested for the 41-year-old murder of Shelley Connolly. And local law enforcement announced the break in the case this past Tuesday and what must have been a moment of extreme relief for all of Shelley's friends and family, who likely thought that they would never have an answer. Genetic genealogy is proving to be an amazing key to unlocking so many old cold cases. Just a few months ago, the two decades old cold case of the murder of Sophie Sergi got a break due to this same process, and a suspect was finally arrested. I, for one, can't wait to see these assholes stand trial for crimes that they likely thought they had gotten away with forever. And of course, to see the families of the victims get answers. I'll definitely be following both stories and will bring you updates as they happen. And with all of that out of the way, let's get back into World War II in Alaska. When we last left off with the war, both the Americans and the Japanese were settling in for a long, cold winter standoff with neither side refusing to budge or back down. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned how the Americans had decided to create a new base of operations on Adak Island. There had been a choice between two islands in the Andrianovs, Adak or Tanaga. Both were several hundred miles closer to the Japanese forces, but neither was the best choice to have a large-scale military operation. 
ADAC ended up winning out primarily for having the better harbor, though it was in doubt whether a decent airfield could ever be built on the island. Operation Fireplace, as it would be known, was set to commence on August 30, 1942. As I mentioned last time, the Alaskan Scouts, aka Kastner's Cutthroats, would be doing reconnaissance on the island prior to the bulk of the men making landfall. Their leader was Colonel Lawrence Kastner, and he had big shoes to fill. His father, General Joseph Kastner, had been a part of the Glen Survey Expedition of Alaska in 1898. Then in the military, he had worked alongside the Tagalog Scouts, which was a similar group in the Philippines, and he had led the 3rd Army Division in France during World War I. He had made it out of that war alive and was still alive during World War II and probably proud to watch his son follow in his footsteps. Lawrence Kastner had already proven himself to be a very ambitious and driven young man. He had been an Olympic fencer right after graduating from West Point, but he would just continue to prove his mettle. He had been inspired by his dad's stories of the Tagalog Scouts, which in part led to the formation of the Alaskan Scouts. Though the idea of the Scouts had actually been born even before Pearl Harbor was attacked, and eventually would be made up of 66 volunteers from a huge variety of backgrounds, lifestyles, and ethnicities. While the majority of them were from Alaska or already living there, there were a few eager volunteers that had been recruited from out of state, many of which were civilians. As I previously mentioned, they had their own particular set of rules, separate from the normal military, since many of them were civilians and also everything was just different for them. They were mostly allowed to make their own choices as far as appearance, clothing, and weapons. Most of them were strapped with various knives along with their preferred guns. They were always armed to the teeth and taught to be ready for anything that Alaska or the war could throw at them. The reason the idea for the scouts had been born before the Japanese had even attacked at Pearl Harbor was because top military brass were certain that one, the U.S. would likely be going to war, and two, if we entered the war, Alaska would play an important role. I found a great article about the scouts written in the World War II military newspaper, which was simply called Yank. I wanted to read a few quotes from the article, which was extremely interesting, primarily for the vernacular of the time. And even though the writer is surely long dead, I'll give him a shout out anyway, Sergeant George Myers. I've also shared the article on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to read the whole thing. It is simply titled The Alaska Scouts and was published July 6, 1942. Myers writes, The Scouts are not supermen, and they're not a gang of bloodthirsty thugs who eat raw meat. He goes on to say that they are just especially adapted to their assignment. When discussing the original 24-man strong group, he states, that original platoon was handpicked from a collection of ruggedly independent characters who probably would have been a pain in the chair knuckle to the commander of any ordinary outfit. When discussing the selection of the direct commanding officer, Captain Robert Thompson of Moccasin, Montana, he says, Thompson was as rough a customer as the men he chose to lead, and the scouts were incredibly loyal to Thompson, and later, 
Lieutenant Carl Acuff, who would lead the 66-man group. In discussing the scouts' loyalty to both leaders, he says, There isn't a man among the scouts that wouldn't crawl to hell with a sack of hand grenades if Captain Thomas or Lieutenant Acuff suggested it. I highly recommend checking out the article as it goes more in-depth about the scouts and who the men were than I've done in this episode. Though you might want to wait for this series to be complete, lest you spoil a 75-year-old story for yourself. And so, just prior to the launch of Operation Fireplace, on the 27th and 28th of August, 1942, two small detachments of scouts landed on Adak Island from submarines. They scouted as much as they could of the 300-square-mile island, searching for any embedded enemy forces. Once they were rest assured that there was no Japanese men hidden on the island, on the night of the 30th, they coordinated the landing of 4,500 American troops late at night through the use of light signaling to signify when it was safe to come on shore. Since so many men were going to be transported at the exact same time, the military had to rely on the use of personal sea craft. So while some of the men would come ashore from military boats, many made the long trip on fishing boats and yachts, among many other types of craft. It was a complicated, large-scale maneuver, and to make things worse, a massive storm whipped up on the day of the operation, which only added to the extreme stress of everyone involved. There was a major sense of urgency to get to the island in secrecy to give themselves time to construct defensive measures. If the Japanese had spotted them on the island before they even had any anti-aircraft guns in place, they would have just been sitting ducks. Ericsson's bomb squadron was in charge of a simple diversionary tactic. They bombed the hell out of Kiska for hours on end. Some men even stayed up over the island for 12 to 15 hours at a time, or until they were nearly out of fuel. They were trying to give Operation Fireplace time to come to fruition, and for the men to have some sort of security on the island before they were spotted. As they had been doing all summer, one of the daily goals of Ericsson's squadron was to hit the airfield that the Japanese were trying to construct, and they always hit their mark. However, as for the Japanese, they had found out that Ericsson often flew in bombing runs with his men, so one of their prime objectives was to find him and shoot him down. But thankfully, they never succeeded with that mission. Despite all the precautions for Operation Fireplace, they weren't able to keep combat at bay even for one day. An American destroyer called Reed had unknowingly trapped an enemy submarine in Nazan Bay at Atka Island. The destroyer was watching over the seaplane tender Casco, not knowing that the enemy submarine had slipped into the bay the night before with the intention of torpedoing the Casco. The destroyer had shown up before the submarine could do its mission, and since it only had two torpedoes, the crew knew that they were unlikely to get out of the situation alive if they chose to try to torpedo both boats. Their only option was to sit at the bottom of the ocean and wait it out, and that's what they did for over 24 long hours. 
The captain was actually beginning to consider surrendering when the destroyer finally left the area. Instead of stealthily slipping away, they decided to go ahead with their mission, and they torpedoed the casco. Several men died in the ensuing explosion, but while the casco was badly damaged, it was still salvageable. The crew disembarked onto Atka Island, and there they found an unexploded torpedo, which they hadn't realized had even been fired at them before the one that actually did hit them. It was in nearly perfect condition, and they were able to send it off to the States for military intelligence purposes. The submarine probably would have been better off just leaving the area, since the destroyer was still close enough to speed back to the area and quickly dispatch the sub, sending all but five men to a watery grave. Despite this incident and the terrible storm, Operation Fireplace was a huge success. On August 30th, 4,500 men were successfully deployed to the island, and within less than a day had dug in quite nicely. And without even getting a chance to rest for even a few hours, they immediately got to work building an airfield. While the Japanese had been slaving away for months trying to build an airfield on Kiska, the airfield on Adak was constructed in just 10 grueling long days primarily because the Americans had real construction equipment and weren't being bombed every five minutes. Normally a project this magnitude should have taken at least a month, but it goes to show that you can achieve the near impossible if under sufficient amounts of pressure. Just ask anyone that's written a term paper overnight. I know that I have. Within a few weeks, all equipment and weaponry had been moved to, from Umnak to Adak, and the men said goodbye to the island that had been their base all summer. The very next day, the 14th of September, a massive attack was launched from the new base. It would cause more damage against the enemy than all previous attacks combined. The bombers struck at the lowest altitude possible, sometimes flying as low as a dozen feet above the ocean to stay out of the range of anti-aircraft guns. Overall, during this one raid, they sunk two ships and destroyed three others, destroyed several submarines, planes, and anti-aircraft guns, caused major damage and fires to several buildings, and killed over 200 Japanese soldiers. A handful of American men also died during the battle, but overall it was a massive victory. And from that point on, the Aleutian campaign was kicked into a higher gear. Buckner was elated. He was nothing if not ambitious and daydreamed about moving forward the defensive line with the end goal of invading the Japanese mainland. Though the rest of the men most likely just wanted to get the Japanese out of Alaska so they themselves could get the hell out of there. Initially, to the men stationed there, Adak didn't feel much different from the last cold, wet, and windy island but they at least now had the benefit of flying much shorter bombing runs. But other than that, most men would stay hunkered in their tents all day until they absolutely had to leave. Even in the tents, no one ever felt like they truly escaped the wet atmosphere. It was constantly rainy and wet, mud got on absolutely everything, 
and the tents would sometimes end up with standing pools of water due to seepage. However, since winter was approaching and it would get even colder on the island, naval construction teams came in and constructed buildings to house the men, offices, and everything else. In just a couple of months, a little town had sprung up on the island. But while the military would only be on the island for a period of months, the former base would later become the town of Adak, which is still populated today. And the island would also have a large military presence during the Cold War, which is a story for a different day. As an aside, I'd also like to add that naval construction built fortifications all along the entire Alaska coast, including Sitka, Cordova, Seward, Kodiak, and I've actually seen some of them in Seward and Whittier. It's quite interesting to see these buildings still standing after all of these years. Kolklau submarines still continued to be an integral part of the war. They would actually travel farther afield from Alaska than any other Americans involved in the Aleutian campaign. They traveled as nearly as far as the Japanese mainland, and even sunk a Japanese ship right by Paramushiru in the Kuro Islands, which are historically Japanese but have long been a source of contention between Japan and Russia. The submariners were likely just as tough as the Alaskan scouts. They had to deal with being under seas for days at a stretch, and the fierce storms in that region tossed the submarines around like toys. Many of the men would receive their only wartime injuries from getting tossed around in a sub. The storms weren't all bad, though. Because of them, the Americans had a whole month on ADAC to get really dug in before the Japanese finally figured out where they were. This was because visibility was so poor, the Japanese were never able to successfully follow American bombers back home. When the Japanese finally found the Americans at Adak after a month, they tried to give them a dose of their own medicine and attempted to bomb the hell out of them for five days straight. Unfortunately, by this point in the war, the Japanese were very low on all supplies, including planes and bombs. The attack was similar to a toddler punching a giant, and it ended quickly with no real damage done. Within the same few days at the end of September, Japan decided to tighten their ranks, and the few soldiers stationed on Atu closed up shop and went to join up with the rest of them at Kiska. The Americans figured this out, but were too distracted to take back Atu at the time, which probably would have been good for everyone, and it would have been good for morale. No one expected that the campaign could last much longer, and at this point most men were probably just trying to stay alive and sane. Unfortunately, Buckner made a decision which would ultimately cause his campaign to go on for many more months. He put small platoons of men on Atka, Sequim, St. Paul, and Tanaga Islands. The Japanese command saw this as a decisive move forward, and possible ramping up prior to attempting an invasion of Japan itself. At this point, they made the executive decision to basically fight to the death rather than to give up Kiska, believing that this defensive stronghold might be the one thing standing in the way of an American invasion from the north. 
Meanwhile, temperatures were dropping and fall was rapidly changing into winter. The Japanese had still not managed to build an airfield on Kiska, and with the renewed determination to hold the line there, the command decided it was time to ramp things up a little themselves. They sent hundreds more soldiers to the North Pacific. Some of them would join the majority on Kiska, but the majority went back to Attu to re-establish a base there. For some reason, it had taken them this long to consider the possibility of building an airfield there rather than Kiska. A few weeks later, the Americans realized the error of their ways when flying in the area, one pilot spotted the Japanese back on Attu Island. The Americans had missed their chance to take back control of Attu, and if they had done so, the Aleutian campaign likely wouldn't have lasted much longer. Even more unfortunate for American pilots, Attu was 300 miles further away than Kiska, so while the advancement to ADAC had given them a few months of much easier bombing runs, they would now be experiencing the 600-mile runs that had so worn them out during the summer, and they would be doing them in the super cold and super dark winter months. It was the end of October, and things were only going to get worse from there on out. As the year was heading to an end, the main combat would now shift to a focus on Attu, and over time, Kiska would become much less involved. There was a belief that the Japanese might try to establish a base on a Michka island, due to an intercepted code. Ericsson did a bombing raid on a Michka and destroyed every building in the village to make sure that no Japanese troops were hiding inside. Once the buildings were destroyed, the Alaskan scouts thoroughly explored the island, and while they didn't find any Japanese soldiers, they did, si they did see signs that the Japanese had recently visited the island. They saw great potential for another airfield to be built on a Michka, and they considered that the Japanese might be thinking the same thing. So they would have to beat them in a race to occupy the island. This would be the Americans' most dramatic and dangerous move yet, since the island was just 40 miles from Kiska. As 1942 was winding down, the landscape of Alaska was totally transformed from just the year prior. There were now over 150,000 military troops stationed in Alaska, 15,000 of which were on ADAC. In November, the Alaska-Canada Highway had finished construction, and this would greatly aid in the transfer of supplies for the Alaska-Siberia Lend-Lease Program, which had begun operations that September. The Lend-Lease program was a secret government initiative to supply weapons, supplies, trucks, and aircraft to our allies, including Russia. Hitler had made the mistake of going back on a pact between Germany and the Soviet Union that they would not turn against each other in war. Well, Hitler changed his mind in 1941 and decided to attack the Soviet Union. You might say that this was a mistake. He had now created a large and powerful enemy. You know the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, that was very true in this situation. The U.S. decided to provide the Russians with the means to defend themselves and in the process to have them be one of our greatest allies, during World War II anyways. This program was created by Roosevelt and understandably had to be kept secret. 
with the certainty that most Americans would probably lose their minds if they knew how much money we had spent on other countries. And the amount was staggering. Over the course of the Lend-Lease program, $50 billion worth of supplies and aircraft in 1941 money went to over 30 countries, but the biggest chunk, $11 billion worth of supplies, was sent to Russia. They were primely located to kick Germany's ass, sufficiently motivated, and they had no shortage of men available to be sent to war. The route through Alaska started in Great Falls, Montana, and ended up in Moscow. But since the Soviets didn't want American soldiers coming into the country, the Soviet pilots would actually come to Ladfield and Fairbanks, where they would pick up aircraft and other supplies. The Soviet pilots would actually bunk up with the American soldiers while they stayed in Fairbanks getting training on the new aircraft. And while the program was kept secret from the majority of the U.S. until 1944, in Alaska it was an open secret since there were Soviet soldiers all over the place. Though the construction of the Alcan, the Alaska-Canada Highway, had been expedited because of the war, it also helped the population quickly grow because of an influx of civilians, especially when Alaska began offering parcels of land to anyone who would move up there and homestead on their property. As a personal aside, I wanted to mention that my grandparents drove out the Alaska-Canada Highway in 1958 with my baby mother to start a homestead in Anchor Point, Alaska. It's a rough trip now, one that I've done several times, so I can't imagine how hard it must have been back then when the highway was gravel, often muddy, and with very few amenities along the way. Anyway, I will wrap this episode up here at the end of 1942. There's much more left of the story, but I'm going to try to wrap it up in part four, but don't get mad if it ends up being two more parts. And if you haven't listened to episodes number 28 and 29, as I mentioned, I'd urge you to do so after you're done with this, as it details the story of a very heroic World War II pilot named Leon Crane and his survival epic in the harsh Alaskan wilderness. Thank you so much for listening, and I will hope to come back to you guys much quicker this time around. Thanks again. Bye.